Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 21. And with me, uh, well, I should introduce myself because I often forget to do that. (laughs) I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman. And with me every week is my co-host, the sinister Mitchell Davis. What's up? I'm I'm sinister this week. Oh yeah, I love it. <laughs> How's it going? It's going good, man. We have a landmark show. Our very first special, extra special guest All right. is on the show. Uh, Julie Nasrallah is coming on the show to talk to us about Carmen and. Uh, well, let's just say hi, Julie. Hi, Tony. Hi, Mitch. It's <laughs> hey, Julie. so great of you guys to have me on your show, man. I am just thrilled. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks right. for coming on. We're we're just super thrilled to have you. And um, Julie is uh, accomplished opera singer. Has performed the role of Carmen. Uh, I don't know how many times. Do you even know how many times? I don't know yeah. how many times. <laughs> it's just in me. It's just I am a walking little Carmenite on the streets of Ottawa, Canada. So <laughs> I feel like I'm always embodied by this yeah. lovely young gypsy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you you've always had that spirit of Carmen, and you're like it. You're like a very nice Carmen. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't seen my my biteier side, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's I good. have, Julie. Oh, actually, you have, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a, for a whole other show. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, or uh, maybe not, yeah. So, so, yeah, Julie has obviously uh, a much deeper insight into this opera than uh, than Mitchell and I will ever have. And uh, we are super excited to talk about the opera with her. And in addition to your, your big singing career... Um, you are host of Tempo, which is the preeminent uh, classical music show on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting uh, C. What does C stand for? Corporation. Corporation. Oh, corporation. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the, basically the Canadian NPR. It's the public broadcaster. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we were just kind of talking about this because uh, we know each other because we used to live in Bloomington, Indiana. Yes. We both used to live there and uh, we both used to live in the same sort of apartment complex <laughs> thing, right? Yes. And and um uh since then, you know, um I have not talked to you since you got this gig, this radio gig. No, it's been ages, yeah. Yeah, and you were sort of telling me a little bit about how you got this thing. Can you sort of repeat that story cuz it's it's amazing. Sure, I was it still amazes me. I, I, this is my fourth season with the CBC. And uh, essentially what happened was I was headhunted for it. It was something that came right out of the blue. I was in New York City checking my email in a cyber cafe. And I received an email from a Canadian headhunter. And I thought it was spam. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah I, almost, I trashed it. And then as I trashed it, I thought, you know what, maybe I should take a second look at that when I get home, because it was so out of left field, I couldn't conceive that anyone 
was would be writing to me about anything like that. So I I got home from New York City and I and sure enough I I took it out of my email trash and I I gave it a good second look and I just thought this is this is what is this you know so I phone <laughs> I phoned the headhunter and uh, I wanted to find out what was going on and something just happened when I spoke to him some kind of switch went on that I never knew I had. And all of a sudden I was just talking to him about music and all these different genres and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, but the big, the big obstacle was that I had just won a, a big grant from the um, Canada Council for the Arts here. And I was heading off to Vienna and Paris. And so uh, the headhunter said, you know, you go ahead to Vienna and uh, we'll be in touch. And, you know, two days later, they called me at home again saying, look, the CBC is interested. And I said, OK, well, I'm actually now on a plane, getting on a plane in four hours to Vienna. They said, oh, keep going. You keep, you keep going to Vienna. That's all right. You know, <laughs> and I got I got to Vienna and I was literally putting my taking my clothes out of the suitcase, putting them in a closet. And the phone rang in my Vienna flat. And I just thought, well, who is that? There are only two people in the world that have this number, my mom and the CBC, and it was the CBC. I just could not believe it. They, there was this somewhat of a relentless pursuit, and, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, write a radio show. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> not having a clue about what that meant. Yeah, um, about a month later, they flew me back from Vienna. I did a screen test and a radio test, I guess. I thought my, my job had been done. You know, I did my best to write my show as, as how I conceived maybe a radio show should go. And I was ready to, to get back on a plane. I, I was like, I'm buying a pair of shoes and I'm going back to Vienna. And I was shortlisted. They, they, they made me change my flight again. And I did a second radio test with them and then I flew back and a month later they offered me the job I was completely gobsmacked I just couldn't believe it I asked them if they were serious and they said oh yeah <laughs> then I said what should I do they said go out and have a drink so I, I went out in Vienna all by myself <laughs> I just I just went out in Vienna I went to this Mexican restaurant and I had a margarita I sort of raised a glass and went well here's to not knowing what the hell comes next like <laughs> wow and then I flew, I flew home on Canada Day, July 1st, and four days later, five days later, I was in a broadcast center in Toronto, and my life hasn't been the same ever since. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Wow, wow. That it's, one, is crazy. it's one for the, the books, right? It's one for the autobiography. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. definitely. <laughs> man, how, that just brought up one question. How's the Mexican food in Vienna? <laughs> you know what? It was really good. <laughs> the restaurants there are really good. <laughs> I know. Awesome. Well, I know. so so now you do the show. It's it's a four hour broadcast. Yeah, live um, national. Yeah, four hours live. Yeah, so that's that's the thing that you know, Mitch <laughs> and I can can screw up and you know talk and talk and talk and and and, and do whatever you know and take a break and uh, we can fix it all and post and you know it, you're just you got to do it right there. You know? Yeah, you got to do it right there. It's yeah. a it's a really really high pressure job. There is a lot of technique involved in it, and it's um, really an interesting. There's a very interesting depth to it all because it's a little bit like having a 
a career in music or becoming a virtuoso with your instrument. It's it's a metaphor for life. It's how much to push forward, how much to not push, how much to say, how much to not say, um, how much to practice, knowing when to let go. There are all these really sort of heavy concepts, like heavy human concepts behind being a good host. Right. So you know, what you're doing is you're hosting a party. You're not really you're not really there to, you know, you're not, you're not a class and you're not a concert hall. You're not a lecture hall, but you have to have tiny snippets of things, human and intellectual and heart filled and soul filled and brain filled that sort of feed, um, you know, essentially millions of people. I think we reach something like a million people a week, a little over a million people a week. So it's, um, it's huge, but it's all it all resides in those really basic human elements, the things that people want to want to hear and want to know about. Basically, yeah. most people just want to be moved in life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think yeah. that your experiences on the stage and, you know, uh, producing these dramatic works and trying to get all those human uh you know, human qualities that that you were talking about across to an audience would really transfer well to this job. I think. I think they do. Yeah. It's, they're very, they're very, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to performing on the stage. And, uh, it, it has, it it has actually made me a better musician and it's made me a better singer. And, uh, I, I mean, I listen to classical music for hours a day. It's, and it's, it works this really deep magic on my singing life because I'm not listening to a lot of singers. I'm listening to Beethoven and I'm listening to Mozart and I'm listening to Sibelius and Bartok. I mean, these really heavy cats who had yeah. really heavy philosophies in their life. So it's, it's, it's really feeding my performance life really in a big, deep way. So it just, it's just awesome. My whole life is just consumed by music 24 seven. Yeah. Well, man, congratulations (laughs) on it. I I couldn't imagine a more awesome person to get that kind of opportunity. So I'm, I'm just so thrilled. You're awesome and sweet to say that. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, yeah, man. Um, so, (laughs) so let's get on to Carmen. So, Let's do it. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to move this to the top of the show um, to accommodate our guest. And uh, we're going to start with, like I said, Georges Bizet's opera Carmen. Uh, the recording that we're talking about here that's in the book is uh, uh, Victoria de Los Angeles, uh, yes. who's playing Carmen uh, with the French radio orchestra conducted by Sir Thomas Beecham, released in 1960. Uh, this must be one of those seminal recordings of this piece, you know, that kind of everybody knows. Yeah. It's uh, hot. Yeah. 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 And um, a little bit about Bizet. Um, he was born in 1838, died in 1875, only at age 36. I mean, this guy, and what a tragic, mm-hmm. uh, what a tragic end to this dude. I mean, we're, we're going to get into it, but. Um, you know, early on, he was a really successful student, you know, came up through the whole French system, which at that time, uh, even into the 20th century, was just this unbelievably rigorous. It was like, you know, military basic training or something. It was it was unbelievably rigorous. 
And uh, he won the Prix de Rome, which was a huge prize, huge deal. Hi, cat. Uh, our, <laughs> my, my cat likes to uh, come on the show uh, every once in a while. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, he, he won this prize. Um, I, I never knew how what big of a deal this thing was, the Prix de Rome, until a few months ago I read the biography of Nadia Boulanger. Oh, yeah. Um, who was uh, the probably the, the greatest teacher of musicians of the 20th century. I mean, really. Um, the, the listing of the, you know, all the famous composers of the 20th century that all studied with her is unbelievable. Um, you know, even people you wouldn't expect, like Quincy Jones. Um, really? Yeah, Quincy, that, that Quincy Jones studied with Nadia wow. Boulanger. Um, so, uh, you know, reading about her pursuit of this prize you know when she was a student it was just it's just a giant deal and it really um determined if you're going to be successful or not you know if you had aspirations to be a composer and you did not take first prize in the Prix de Rome you probably weren't going to be successful Mm -hmm. um you know it was that important um so everything was looking good you know in, in his early life uh but when he emerged from this Prix de Rome and living you know, living it up in Italy at the at the Villa Medici, you know, and this this big palace, and um, he came out and was largely ignored. You know, he he tried several times to get his career started by writing orchestral musics and musics music and uh, opera <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, chamber works, et cetera, et cetera. And these were summarily ignored. Um, he was uh, really, really struggling until he got this commission to write the opera Carmen. Um, and even then, it was just this incredible struggle just to, just to get it written, to say nothing of getting it produced and uh, staged. So, uh, yeah, you know, starting with the recording, what do you think of this um, depiction of Carmen by Victoria de los Santos? I, th- I think it's a beautiful depiction because she is, she's a soprano, first of all. And the role is written for a mezzo. And quite right with good reason, because you think of this earthy, gorgeous, sexual, freedom-loving, really the first feminist in opera, and you sort of want to hear this this deep, resonating, warm sound come out of the gypsy, right? So it's very natural that Bizet would select a mezzo-soprano to sing it. But you often hear, I don't know how often, but every now and then a soprano has her hand at, at, at Carmen. And Victoria de los Angeles is just a beautiful sounding Carmen because her soprano voice in this recording has a warmth and a lushness to it that is really required for the role and really defines the temperament of the character, um, which is quite a multifaceted character. So I I just, I love her singing of it. I love how she manages, let's say the habanera, the first aria. It's, it's warm, it's seductive, it's playful. You have to, you have to really want to love Carmen. You can't, you can't just come out and be this, this, sort of man-eating whore of Babylon. That's not what she is. And, you know, like, that's not what she is. She's 
basically the most important thing for Carmen is freedom. And yeah. so you have to want to, you want to love her love of that and the complete and utmost self-respect that she has for herself in choosing this freedom. And, and so that the first aria is just beautiful because she comes out and she's showing you who she is. And, and De Los Angeles is doing that. She's showing you this warmth, but this flirtatiousness, um, and she makes you fall in love with her. So I, 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 and I also have a really soft spot for Victoria de los Angeles because uh, she sang so much. She was such a hardworking lady in her life, and and her husband basically um, took all her money at the end of it. So she really, yeah, she she had this amazing career, and then you know ended up penniless at the end of it. Um, that I mean, that has nothing to do with Carmen, but she just. She's a terrific artist, essentially, and uh, a, re a really great artist will bring all those things to light in a character. Yeah, you know that you're right. I mean, that's one of the things you kind of want to hear from this character: the the earthiness in the voice, the the sort of sultry quality in the voice, you know, and a warmth, like you said. And uh, I think it's easy to make the mistake when you listen to this opera, especially coming at it from like the perspective of a dude. <laughs> you know, it's it's easy to make the mistake of seeing Carmen as, like you said, you know, this sort of evil, you know, soul sucking succubus sort of <laughs> sort of character. You know, but I think what really happens is it's, you know, the fall of Don Jose is really his own fault for not being able to accept Carmen, you know, for who yeah. she is. That's a very good point. Exactly. I mean, she's just a very free spirit you know, as, as the traditional opera of Carmen presents, but it was his own obsession with her that, that caused everything to sort of unravel and was like, you know, you know, I, I must have you and I must have you this way. And exactly. if I can't, then, you know, there's going to be can. hell to pay. Yeah, exactly. Nobody can. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. It's a very, you know, Don Jose, I think is a very kind of old school man. You know, he, he wants to, to have like almost like to, to own Carmen. Yes. You know, and he, and he wants, wants her to be, her. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He wants her to be like the proper lady and all this stuff. And that's just not her. No, you know? Um, and it basically leads to his downfall. And, and unfortunately, you know, her Hers. downfall, uh, but through really, of uh, you know, no fault of her own. She's just being herself, you know? Well, um, that's the thing. I mean, that, that whole freedom thing, I mean, who she is is so tantalizing to him. Uh, but he can't handle it. He can't, he, freedom, you know, people, people throw around the word freedom at, and we're talking in this context, uh, about the, the life of a freedom loving gypsy. I mean, these people who, who roam from place to place and they, they don't hold down jobs and they wake up to whatever the day brings them. You know, it's very romantic, but actually a lot of people can't handle freedom like that. You know, and Don, Don Jose is one of those people. He can't handle freedom. He needs structure. That's why he's in the army. Right. He's he's seduced by it, but he can't actually handle it. And the other thing that's important to remember about him is that in the novella, he's he's already murdered. He's a murderer. So by the time he's okay. arrived there, he's he's killed somebody. I mean, he's he's not a normal guy. So, <laughs> he's, so he's, yeah. he's a douchebag. He's, he's a douchebag, basically. He's a douchebag. Yeah. He's a criminal. He's yeah. a criminal. Yeah. You know, he's trying to reform himself, but, you know, he's yeah. killed someone. Yeah. 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 And um, 
So, you know, we're, we can get a little bit into um, the story because whenever we present an opera, you know, on the show, uh, we just have to go into the story a little bit, you know, a little bit, a little synopsis. And, yeah. you know, before I start, you know, I have to say, Carmen, she's kind of a badass. Yeah. She's a total badass. You know? Yeah. I mean. In the she, best way. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so interesting, you know, to think about when this opera was written and the other operas that were being produced at this time, their subject matter. And, and this must just have seemed like the the, the most. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a good word. It must have yeah. seemed like some kind of stag film or or. Right. You know, it just they must have been shocked by it. Um, and uh, I, don't, I just think it's awesome. Um, so but yeah, it's 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 obviously not going to have the same impact on a modern audience, you know, uh, but no. I think it's still amazingly after all this time still does have a strong, a very strong impact even on today's, you know, uh, you, you know, jaded, de- desensitized audiences. Exactly. Uh, which is amazing. So. In Act One, uh, it starts. Uh, the scene is uh, in Seville, Spain. Uh, it starts in the town square where there's a cigarette factory. There's and and Julie, if I make any mistakes here, please. Oh gosh. Yell and correct me. Um, <laughs> 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 so, uh, the, there's soldiers standing around, um, basically waiting for the uh, factory workers, the girls that work in the factory, to come out. And uh, so they come out. Carmen comes out. And all the soldiers are vying for her attention, almost like little kids in class, you know, raising their hands. Oh, 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 pick me. Um, so in Don Jose is sort of off ignoring her, right? Yeah, he's um, the only one ignoring her. And so, of course, because he's ignoring her, that's the one that she, you know, fixates on. Right. Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the girls go back into work and Carmen gets into a fight with another girl. Right. Yeah. And she slashes her face with a knife. Yeah. Man, she's a badass. And uh, badass. yeah, so she's she's arrested and she's being guarded by Don Jose. Uh, she seduces him basically um, into releasing her into, you know, untying her bonds. And uh, when he does this, she kind of mocks him and, and, and kind of takes off. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she 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 seduces him uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't take much, right? Cause he, he already knows he wants her. He's just putting on a brave face in the square, but by the time he's got her tied up, which is essentially for that in that era, this is a bondage scene. Like he's tying <laughs> her up. Right. And she's typically playing it where she's grabbing the hem of her skirt with her teeth to raise it so he can see her legs. And there's all this, there's all this yeah. stuff Who, going on, you know, who, who's really she, tied up. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that's, I mean, that's it. And so this is where he falls completely head over heels and she promises him that she will deliver because he helped right, her. Right. He, he, he goes to jail for a couple months for her. It's not only that he takes the rap, but he he gets locked up because he lets her go. And I, the only thing that keeps him going that whole time is knowing that he's going to see her again. So he falls head over heels in love. And I think she thinks he's cute and she realizes what it, he sacrificed for her. So she is ready to deliver. And 
I think in a way she sort of falls for him a little bit too. I don't, I don't think she's as cold hearted. Um, uh, you know, you did this for me. Well, then I'll, I'll shag you for it. I think there's a little bit of her that, that likes him. And I think she's afraid to, to fall because that would mean compromising her freedom. So there are a lot of really complex layers happening. Right, right. Yeah. I think you're right about that. She really does have feelings for him, but you know, Carmen, the character of Carmen, she lives so in the moment, you know, in, right. not, not in the past and not in the future. She just lives for right, right now. Now, exactly. And uh, that's, you know, the whole, one, one of the big reasons why it doesn't work between them, because then later on, you know, she's into this other dude and it, it's right now, you know, it's all about right now, you know. Exactly. Her, um, and so this is going to lead us into our first excerpt that we're going to play, because the first track that we're going to play is this scene where she's, uh, seducing him, trying to get him to let her go. Right. And this track, um, you know, you've obviously performed this many times. Um, mm-hmm. So from the, I don't know, how is how is this for you? You know, as it falls in the opera and you performing this, you know, from inside the character of Carmen, I mean, how is this scene for you? This is a this is one of my favorite scenes because because you're tied up on stage you really are and so and it, it, generally the last one I did they put me in handcuffs wow <laughs> I know so there wasn't a rope they they actually cuffed my hands and if you you know if you can picture handcuffs there's sort of a little bit of a give it's like about a half a foot between the the two the two uh, the, what what do you call it? The things that clamp over your wrists, yeah. and then there's a tiny little chain, so that that, that holds them together. And so I, the whole thing was about I really could not move at all, and I had to sort of put my arms around the tenor being handcuffed. And so this whole scene is one of the quieter moments. On top of it, because when you're trying to seduce someone you're not usually making a big, uh, a big stink about it. Like it's, it's usually something that's quiet and it's subtle and it sort of is wiggling its way into your, you're trying to wiggle your way in, right? So you don't go in all pots and pans, banging pots and pans. And so I love the scene because it forces you to sit still and it forces you to sing with a line and a beauty that is required of the seduction and eventually when he lets you go it's such a victory because your body has been constrained the whole time and so when that happens the other thing that happens is that there's this total like hardcore focus because you're not moving it's all in your voice you have to do everything with your voice no matter what the the little small things that you're doing on the side with the with the skirt and all that junk it it doesn't matter you're still so constrained and then when he lets you go ah when he does let you go Bizet has written actually in the score and ah like it's a ah, ha, ha. it's a very quiet ah he let me go and you're basically swinging the rope you know and then it's sort of a barn burning foot stomping thing at the end so it's just a tremendous play of being at play in seduction hmm. right right and I think yeah. that's that's fascinating what you say because you know obviously you're acting a role you're acting 
the scene, but in a sense, like you said, you really are restrained. And I'm sure yeah. in actuality, you really want to get out of those restraints. <laughs> so so in, in a sense, you know, you're singing for your own freedom, not just figuratively, in, you know, in this sense of playing a role, in, in reality, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Get this off of me <laughs> right. now, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, let's check this out. Uh, this excerpt from Bizet's Carmen and you are going to totally laugh at me. They would never hire me at the CBC because I cannot pronounce French. I don't know why. <laughs> it's um, okay. <laughs> Do it in English. Do it in English. Uh, I don't have the English translation. Oh, okay. I, I just have the the French. I don't. Do you want to introduce you, this? Go. Okay. Go for it. You go for it. I'll correct you. Okay. Is that bad? <laughs> no. I'm gonna go okay. for it. <laughs> It'll be fun. Okay. Sig. Oh God. <laughs> Segadie, Segadie, yes, perfect. And duo, uh, Pre des Ramparts de Seville. Pre des Ramparts de Seville. Perfect. You weren't that oh, bad. Oh, perfect. Yes. I, I, was, <laughs> I sounded just like you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't that bad. Here it is. All right. just heard uh say it again <laughs> de de Sevilla, de Segedia, yes also known as the quesadilla no but yeah. the segedia yeah <laughs> right from uh Bizet's carmen and uh so we're going to move on to the story so that that pretty much concludes act one yes um, there 
And uh, then we move in to this uh, story. Uh, I don't know how, how really to describe it, but almost like a sort of pirate abduction <laughs> kind of thing. They're not really pirates, but sort of. Uh, but, you know, during this, you know, the interim between Act 1 and 2, Don Jose, you know, he's in jail. And uh, he's, you know, all the while... Um, saving his love, right, for Carmen. Yes. Um, and uh, he he is released from jail at the beginning of Act Two. Um, Carmen, you know, pr- professes her love for him. Um, and and basically, what she tries to do is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically, what she tries to do is get him to abandon his military career. You know, basically, saying, yeah. If if you if you really love me, you'll abandon this life and adopt my life basically uh because you know again it comes down to carmen is carmen and you know if you're going to be with carmen you got to accept who she is and i mean carmen could never live nature yeah yeah she could never live a a sort of military regimented life like don jose has that's not an option oh god she would die yeah but the the problem with this scene is that the thing that 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 puts her there getting him to try and come and join the gypsy smuggler's is that she she's in she's in the pub and she hears that he's been released right and she is excited about it she knows he's coming to get her and he shows up he's all you know, breathless, and he's been singing a song on the way in. I mean, the guy is looking forward to seeing his woman, right, after essentially being imprisoned, well, emotionally at war for months. He shows up, and she starts to seduce him. She pulls out all the stops. She brings out the candy, the oranges, all, you know, it's a celebration for her, and she wants to do it. And then he hears the call of the trumpet calling him back to the barracks. And he basically stops her in the middle of this seduction, which just floors her, right? She cannot, she cannot believe yeah. that after all this time, he's here and he hears the call and he's just going to take off. Like it's pretty much interrupt us. Yeah, yeah. Huge. It's huge. And so she just flips out and says, what the hell do you think you're doing? I did this. I did that. You go, you little, you know, pansy, go, go back to the barracks, basically, (laughs) is what she what she says to him. And then he breaks into this huge love song. Like, what do you mean if I love like essentially what he's trying to tell her is I love you just because I'm, I'm being called back to duty doesn't doesn't I'll be back, you know, and she no, no, she's not having it. Because he's essentially humiliated her in the middle of this seduction right, by, right. by saying the yes to go. So when he sings, he sings this big aria and professes this love to her. And it's a huge moment for him. And at the end of it, she says, no, you don't. You don't love me. <laughs> no, you don't. Right. And, it, and he just and this is when she tries to turn the tables on him. And she says, if you did love me, you wouldn't go back there. You would join us now. And and. He, he, he does it. He does it for her because 
another commanding officer comes in and tells him to get out and he says no and it just it's this huge big complicated sticky mess so that's where that impulse comes from her to tell him to join them it's because he he's humiliated her in her seduction and uh and eventually he does and that's where it all goes south yeah she right doesn't, she, she doesn't want him anymore but she wanted to stick it to him right 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 and then <laughs> then what happens is um well i guess the uh commanding officer comes in they draw swords but yeah. they're kind of interrupted by the smugglers right yes so the smugglers sort of disarm them take the superior off officer as a hostage yes. basically and don jose really has no choice that's right but to but to follow carmen and these smugglers you know on their task of basically unloading their contraband that they've they've got right exactly um so that's that's act two. And uh, is there anything else you want to add about act two? No, that's that's pretty good. I mean, that the, the reason that Don Jose gets in a fight with the other with the commanding officer is because he knows that if the commanding officer sends him away, that he and Carmen are going to hook up. He knows it. So. Don Jose wants to stay in the same room as her because he knows the second he gets sent off, Zuniga and, and Carmen are going to get it on. So this <laughs> is, you know, at one point she says, to hell with the jealous one, to hell with the jealous one, which is the exact line. And that's when she summons the gypsies to come in. They take Zuniga hostage and, and that's Don Jose is forced. So she's in control the whole damn time. It's spectacular. Yeah. Yes. But that, well, yeah. yeah. It, it, she's once again, she's a badass. Yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> it. Basically they, yeah, you're right. They end the scene with uh, Don Jose and Carmen basically just, this is it. They're together and away they go into the mountains. Act three. Woo. Right. So yeah, act three, yeah. They're, they're, they're in the mountains. Um, the smugglers are uh, again, trying to, to get rid of their, their stuff. Uh, they have Don Jose guarding the stuff. Um, yeah. In this point, Carmen is pretty vocal about just being sick of Don Jose. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, she's just sort of thrown in his face, just like, you know, you're, you're yesterday. I'm sick of you, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, her future love interest comes into the scene, Escamillo, right? Mm -hmm. So oh, this, yes. this is the, uh, the bullfighter from Seville. Um, and uh, he uh, apparently confides his love for Carmen to Don Jose, not realizing who Don Jose <laughs> is right exactly and don jose gets you know <laughs> you know he gets all pissed off and um he challenge challenges escamillo to a duel escamillo basically makes quick work with of him i think kind of mockingly so um yes. and uh you know uh after this well then then what happens is something like uh escamillo they fight again and his knife breaks right well, they 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 fight, and Don Jose gets the better of him. So he's he he bests him, and he's just about to strike when again Carmen comes in. Okay, and goes, "Hola, hola, hey, what are you doing?" And she saves the situation. <laughs> so again, here she is being the badass, and she saves the situation. 
Jose is in a furious, jealous rage. The Toreador is keeping, has retained his elegance and his composure. And he says, oh, look who it is who's saving my life. It's you, the love of my life. And so he makes this huge display about uh, inviting everyone to the bullfight. And he, you know, he condescends to, he's very condescending in nature to Jose by saying, you know, my friend, you, you, you need to calm down. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing that, that nothing that makes you more angry than someone telling you you need to calm down, right? You need to calm down there, bud. And then he and he basically ends by saying, anyone who loves me will come to the bullfight. And then he turns to Carmen and says, if you love me, you'll come to the bullfight. And he kisses her hand. And it's this whole design to make Jose jealous again, because Carmen plays that up as well. She plays into to the Toreador's affection in that scene. And after the Toreador leaves, Jose just busts a gasket. He just loses <laughs> right. his mind, right? He says, "You be careful, Missy, because I am. I you are you are making me this this pain and this jealous rage. It's exhausting me, you know. And you know when you've reached that point of exhaustion, you 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 lose your humanity, and that's what he's trying to tell her that don't don't push me this far because." bad things are going to happen, which they eventually do. And then he goes on to attack her in the scene and, and it's, uh, it's, it's not a good scene. So at this point, you know, they need to be separated and it's over. It's ended badly and it's over. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's basically the end of act three. Act four comes about, uh, at the bullfight. Yes. And, uh, at this point, you know, Carmen and Escamillo are together, right? They're, yes. they're like an item at this point. Yes. Uh, you, you, you know, depending on how some directors play, you know, there's um, Carmen and, and, and her two gypsy best friends show up in beautiful gowns. And it's assumed that Escamillo has given her the money for that. I mean, he's dressed her up. He's made her gorgeous um, in order for her to attend this bullfight. And she knows she's there for him. And she, he come, he makes this big grand entrance and she's, his lady at this, this fight. And he says, if you love me, you know, here I am and I'm going to win this bullfight for you. And, uh, he says, if I win this bullfight, maybe, maybe you'll be proud of me after. And she, she says, we oui, je It's the only time we ever hear Carmen professing love for someone. She says, yes, I love you too. Go fight the good fight and I'll see you after. And that's when all hell breaks loose and Jose turns up like a maniac. Right, exactly. So he's in the crowd yeah. like some crazy stalker, right? Yeah, and, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's animal at this point. Yeah. yeah, and he confronts her, you know, as she's trying to enter the uh, the ring, I guess. And, yeah. and sort of, you know, makes crazy professions of love and take me back, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's just basically like, dude, what is your damage? Yeah, get exactly. away from me. <laughs> um, exactly. And uh, he ends up stabbing her. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's it's a brutal scene. And I think it's 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 people showing themselves at their at their Jose, essentially showing himself at his weakest and most animalistic because he's he he's he goes from rage to begging to pleading to i'll do anything you want and just just don't go just don't go just don't go and she's just trying to keep it together 
because as she's read in act three, she's read her, her own death in the cards and his as well. And so she knows it's coming. And the thing, the, the way I like to play act three, and I think it's very, uh, act four is this, this murder scene. And I think it's very crucial is to show that she knows she's going to die. And what you often see are Carmen's that are so stoic in this final scene of their death. And I just don't buy it. I think I think you can be willing to die, but it doesn't mean you're not scared shitless. You know, I, I, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean that you're not terrified. And so I th I think that this this play between him being the big the animal who's lost all sense of himself and lost control, and her trying to maintain the control that clashes and clashes and clashes. And eventually, the more aggressive he gets, I really like to play it that she's getting, he's scared, he is, I mean, she's scared of him to begin with, but she starts to show that she's scared as the scene falls deeper and deeper into play. And so that by the end of it, it's like, just kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me already, you know? So there isn't this, this sort of stony-faced Carmen accepting the knife in it. Again, this is their their last emotional blowout. Um, there's I, there's a a great the last time I sang this was a great tenor, and we we decided that Carmen was going to also have a bit of an emotional breakdown in that scene too. So at one point she says, "Just kill me already," and then starts smacking him like a, like wow. like like she's lost. Like I just oh, and the guy was so good. He just let me smack him like really smack him you know for real he said look at you you're a little twerp you're not gonna hurt me just smack me you know so um she just sort of loses it and starts smacking his face and his body and then when she sees that he doesn't really have the the courage to do it she sort of reassumes this strength and then he just busts it and gets her you know he in the most cowardly way when she's let down her guard right so it's really a tremendous tremendous piece of human theater that ha again has a lot of levels and it's really really wonderful when it's played with all those levels instead of him just being this animal and her being this this unmovable heroic person it's like you must it just be... doesn't work that way in real life yeah no no yeah, yeah. You, you you're must... terrified if someone's putting a knife to your neck, you are terrified. You know, you're not just sort of going, "Yeah, okay, this is an honor killing. Go ahead, kill me." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a terrifying thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Tony. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. Well, no, no. I, I was just gonna say, you know, after your description of, um, you know, making these artistic decisions, you know, how to portray these scenes and how to portray these emotions and and these motives and all this stuff. I mean, you must be completely drained after one of these performances. You, you know what the funny thing is, is that you're not initially because it's so exhilarating. It's such um, it's such a high. It's such I mean, it's hard work from stop from top to tail. Right. It's it's just it's it's an exercise not only in physical stamina, but in in concentration. I think the biggest thing is to keep your concentration the whole time is just as demanding. So you are you are, but you're exhilarated and then. Yeah, and then about an hour later, you're you just like pass the tequila and off you go to bed, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it is draining. But if you're doing something well, it's it's just as yeah, it's just as fulfilling. 
Mm. Yeah, that last scene. And, you know, and the whole thing about that, too, is that as you go on in your career, you learn how to, you know, how far you can go without compromising yourself and um, and how to balance all these. things. That's why these things take a really long time, because if you if you start to to perfect or to, you know, not perfect, it's never perfect. But that's why the bet the, the older you are, the better, because you've, you've learned how to manage yourself in these really high, highly powered, dramatic scenes. Um, and if you have a good tenor, it's 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 even better because he's feeding you, too. You know, so, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, if you have a dud for a tenor, that's exhausting because <laughs> <laughs> you're doing everything, you know, right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah which I'm sure you have experienced both extremes and everything in between probably so oh, oh yeah. i have to say i've never really had a, a bad tenor there there's been varying degrees of good but the, yeah, the yeah. last person i sang with was richard troxel who's an world-renowned tenor which was like a, a huge coup for me to be able to sing this with him and uh we just it was to say that it was a house on fire i think doesn't really do it justice. We're, we're both love acting and we both love singing and we're both courageous. We don't, we don't, we're, we're, we're not afraid to show things that are ugly and things that are private and that kind of stuff on stage. So he was really terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, so this brings us to our final excerpt, you know, this, uh, of, of the, of the final scene, you know, that we're talking about. Yes. And, uh, this is let's just roll this um this is uh the basically the, this final scene uh this confrontation final confrontation between uh carmen and don jose uh the duo <laughs> okay i'm gonna try um <laughs> c'est moi yeah c'est toi yeah c'est moi c'est toi right yeah all right so let's hear it c'est, uh from bizet's carmen c'est moi c'est toi c'est toi c'est moi avait avertir que tu ne t'es pas loin, que tu te fais venir. L'on m'avait même dit de craindre pour ma vie. Mais je suis brave et n'ai pas voulu fuir. Je ne menace pas. Je
I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Tony, I, just for your edit purposes, I think it's c'est toi, c'est moi. I think it's yeah. the other way around. It's c'est toi, c'est moi. Okay, c'est toi, c'est moi. So that's cool. Um, yeah. So we just heard c'est toi, c'est moi um, from Bizet's Carmen. And uh, I don't know, any any final thoughts from you on on this, you know, on on, on really the... the uh, the impact that this opera has made, you know, on your life, really, uh, it must be huge. The impact that this opera has made on my life is really huge because I, I think that when, when you really have a feel for a character, I think that it's because you yourself aren't, aren't that far away from that character in real life. Um, I, I have never in the history of my life, which has been about music since as far back as I can remember, um, everyone has always told me, oh my God, you are a Carmen. You are a living, breathing, real life Carmen. And it, it essentially is very true. I mean, I don't, I don't certainly don't have the criminal <laughs> aspect to her in my life, <laughs> but I, I certainly have always felt that my personality and the way I am in my personal life is most definitely uh, akin to hers. I've always felt that this character was a real character. I mean, that I think the reason, I mean, Carmen is one of the top five most performed operas in the world, and it's for good reason. I think there is... Oh, there is a recognizability in her and and all the characters that they are utterly human and they're utterly flawed mm -hmm. and each character possesses something you wish you had more of or you wish you had less of yeah. and there's a relate the relatability of these people portraying these characters on stage it's 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 something else when you've got operas about gods and goddesses and all that kind of stuff you don't really feel close to it but this you can feel close to and you know, as, as far as it personally impacting me, um, not only is it the perfect thing for me, but I do value a lot of what she values. I've never been married. I, I love men, and which is to say that, you know, I, I have always just had a partner because I wanted to be with that partner. And then when it was over, it was over and I moved on to someone else. Like I was faithful and I was good in that love, but it never really occurred to me to actually give myself over in a, in a way that marriage yeah, sort of right. speaks to me, right. you know? Yes. And, and the only thing I ever dreamed about when I was a kid was not growing up and getting married and having kids. But the thing that I dreamed about, even before I knew Carmen 
existed was a thing. I just wanted to be free. I remember being four and looking out my bedroom window into the nighttime and thinking, I just can't wait to grow up and be free. And I never even knew what that meant, but I remember feeling like that and thinking that. And so there are so many attributes that I recognize in this in this character that it's really hard for me not to A, fall in love with it, and B, identify with it um, on, on, a, on, a, on a real life basis. So every time Carmen gets killed at the end, I find it a real, it's, it's hard. I, I, I'm sad for her because even with all the, the underground stuff, she, I love her. I love her yeah, and yeah. I feel like she is my, my, my sister. And, and when she dies, a personality that big is a big loss. You, you feel the loss in the room when she dies. So, um, because, and I think Mitch spoke to this earlier when you, when you said, Mitch, you know, this is about a guy who basically can't, Don Jose, who can't, he's like a stalker. He can't get a hold of his feelings and he eventually murders her. I mean, that, that is a story that, that still plays out today, right? In the yeah. news. So, I mean, yeah. these are, these are at the risk of sounding cliched. I mean, these are sort of universal, um, trends in, just being alive on the planet. I mean, this is just, this is shit that happens. And yeah. and Carmen is, it speaks to all of that. It's not a fantasy. So, so, so there's so many things at play there, you know, and then just vocally, it just fits like a glove. And temperamentally, I mean, temperamentally, it goes with the personality of the character. And uh, I, I feel like I'm a kinder, more human, gentler Carmen than um, than you do you do see sometimes played because I, I think it's more of a tragedy if you love her even in if you love her at the end still yeah well yeah I mean like yeah. I said at the very beginning of when we talked to you you know you're, not, you're like a nice Carmen <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not you know I'm 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 a Carmen of I understand that you know maybe a little bit of smuggling is what I do what I need to do to get by but you know but that's not so bad. I never yeah. killed anybody. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. never killed anyone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, awesome. And, and well, uh, we thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for coming on and uh, making the show, you know, just extra special. It, it um, was. I, I should be thanking you guys, man. Any chance to come on and talk to old friends about great music is just, I'm there. I'm there. Yeah. Anytime, y'all. Yeah. Awesome. Is yeah. there is there anything that you want to, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to pimp, plug, anything? Pimp or plug? Yeah. <laughs> sure. I can. I can. Let me plug um, that I do. I actually produce Carmen as dinner theater in Ottawa. Uh, so I. It's the full. It's the full deal. It's the full meal deal. I've just taken out some of the comic bits, and it, so it makes it a little bit darker and a little bit sexier. Um, but, uh, it's, it's my baby and, uh, it's called Carmen on tap. If you ever want to just check it out, there's a nice little YouTube reel of it, a little sizzle reel of it. But, uh, if you're ever in Ottawa and you want to come see a nice, uh, boutique opera and have a little dinner, it's casual, it's inexpensive and you get some really first rate singers and you get to see Carmen in jeans and you know, <laughs> nice. go out for a smoke after your meal, if you want to, or, you know, a, a really, it's really an attempt to to take the 
a high culture out of it because you know yeah, that that's a good good point that you just made when you were you were talking about the the way people can still relate to the things going on uh between the characters in in the opera even now the book even speaks on that where it uses the word pomposity yes which i, I looked at that where i was like okay what what does that even mean i mean just you know the the taking out of all the high mindedness and the complicated nature of of, of what opera can be and, and making it to where you know people can oh yeah i i can relate to that that's yeah and, and it's in the nature of men and women you know over the you know centuries you know it really hasn't changed much no we haven't changed at all you know <laughs> people people you know people want to eat good food they want to drink they want to have a good time and they want stuff that moves them so i was like you know what we're doing this in this pub it's going to be awesome it's going to be cheap i'm going to get the hottest singers i can and it, it is just it is just selling like hotcakes. It's unbelievable, you know, because I'm I'm not a snob. I I'm the kid of, you know, middle class immigrants. I never grew up with classical music. It was something that I just truly dug. And I dig a lot of other stuff, too, you know, and I just thought, you know, enough of this nonsense of of, you know, putting the high prices in and and barring this access access it doesn't have to be that way because this is dirty it's gritty it's hot it's funny you know it, and what else is there <laughs> yeah. yeah what else is there you know yeah exactly. at the end of the day in this life you know you got food and you got music and you got your family and what maybe the sun shines every now and then and that's good especially in february in ottawa yeah you know? <laughs> well yeah and i think that's one reason why you know we got along so well you know we both lived in bloomington because i think we both sort of have this same attitude toward classical music you know? exactly Tom. Um, and we yeah. both kind of come from uh similar backgrounds you know not non-classical backgrounds and um uh yeah i mean i i totally agree with you and i think it's awesome what you're doing uh with carmen i i hope that uh that we both, Mitch and I, you know, get to see it at some definitely. point. Definitely. Um, oh man, definitely. you guys ever in Ottawa for Carmen on Tap? You're, you know, you're my guests, of course. Oh my gosh, it's not it's not an issue, <laughs> and I just love to be in the same room with you for for a little while. You know, oh, that'd be great. Be great. And when when can we hear you on the CBC? Um, you can hear me weekdays from nine to one on CBC Radio Two. And you can get it online. You can stream it online. Uh, and the show is called Tempo. So nine to one, uh, it, it sort of gets staggered across the country like that. Um, awesome. That's it. Yeah. All right, everybody. Check it out. If you live in Canada, especially if you live in Ottawa, um, go to Carmen on Tap. For God's sake, <laughs> go to Carmen yeah. on Tap. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Julie. And um, yeah, have a great one. Thank you, guys, eh? Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Nice Take talking care. with you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. So, man, uh, it was awesome to have Julie on. Uh, thank you again, Julie, uh, for coming on. Julie Nasralla. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was really cool. Our first it guest. Was. That, was, that was great. Thank you, Julie, very much. Uh, you, you have uh, greatly enlightened our show with your presence. And uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I can't wait to listen to our actual actual show I, I can't imagine us i mean four hours for her but but for us the way we do this show trying to do it 
live and and straight through i'd be like oh god yeah <laughs> yeah well there's a there's a short video that that uh, was produced that uh she posted on facebook and uh it basically just goes through her you know how she starts out her morning at the cbc and then a little bit uh during you know the taping of the show and there's one part where you know they're coming up on the hour and they're a little over time i think it is and so they have to you know, scramble to find a replacement piece of music that'll exactly fit in the time that they have left. I mean, down to the second. Mm-hmm. And wow. it's just, it's an amazing, it's amazing to watch the, you know, the production of something like that and, you know, how the gears work and, and how everything, you know, it's, it's just a, a real cursory thing. I'm sure it's so much more in depth than, you know, what the video shows, but it, it's fascinating to watch, you know, nonetheless uh, yeah she she said high pressure I, I believe it i mean i'm just trying to imagine when you when you have to do stuff like that on the spot especially i'm like man you know but um you know kudos to her for a show and 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 her you know history with carmen that's just really some really awesome stories she told of course yeah some insight that we could never ever give um oh no so, <laughs> yeah um, so what we're going to do is um, we're going to try to move on uh, with the show in a little bit more of a, a, a abbreviated manner than we usually do because we're already over an hour. And, you know, even though that, you know, I said, you know, podcasting is like the Wild West, we, we don't really want to end up with like a three hour show. No. Um, so um, we are going to uh, move on to Big Daddy Kane. So something uh, comple- <laughs> completely different from what we were uh, talking about previously his album Long Live the Cane from 1988 um, and I was totally unfamiliar with this album never heard it before um, were you familiar with this at all oh yeah yeah um, the very first time I listened to this album uh, I was in high school and it, it, it was an era where you know it's it's kind of like going into the late 80s um, rap music is still not really considered a, a serious art form by a lot of people, especially the music industry, so to speak. But still, you had a lot of rappers <coughs> like Big Daddy Kane who were just very, very gifted at at what they did as, as far as their style of rapping and, and what they rapped about. And even their whole persona, which Big Daddy Kane had uh, a, a very interesting persona Um you know the and and also too, this is kind of a period where rap was starting to get a little play on on MTV with with shows like Yo MTV Raps and and they definitely played played Big Daddy Kane stuff uh, for sure and um, you know the the thing about him uh, and where he came from he he was from you know Queensbridge area New York where there's so many famous you know rappers that that came from that era or that area i should say and um he was just one of those guys that influenced so many people even now today which um some people you know kind of know about this when when big daddy came would go on tour uh kind of in between his songs he would he would kind of maybe go off stage and a lot of rappers like him would have hype men that would come on and 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 like you know, get the crowd pumped up. Well, one of his hype men back in the day was a guy named Jay Z, who oh, really, you know, some huh. people, 
you know, obviously considered, you know, one of the you know greatest rappers of all time himself, if not the greatest right now. And, um, you know, he, uh, you know, was affiliated with him and, and a lot of other rappers, Biz Marquis, who I, I, I love Biz Marquis, just, you know, and, and the and the Juice Crew, which is a, a group that he was with at Marley Marl, the producer of a lot of his records, uh, was kind of like, you know, producer of, of all those guys in you know, Cool G Rap and uh, Biz and, and just a, a lot of guys that that came up in that era. But anyway, um, really, really interesting uh, rhyme style with with Big Daddy Kane, where, you know, he he wasn't, you know, really like, you know, like a like a gangster where where gangster rap kind of, you know, jumped off, you know, I would say after, you know, the the kind of golden age of hip hop music where you had, you know, rappers that that, you know, battled each other, you know, with with yeah. lyrics and 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 wit and not necessarily, you know, the the things that that rap music kind of went to, you know, eventually after that, yeah, you know, you, it you was can, more You can definitely tell this is the pre-chronic era. Yeah, and and, and 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 I mean, you know, that that's to me it's it's just it's just history and the way things kind of played out yeah. because some people feel like the that when yeah. rap went in that direction it was really it was a really kind of like a a negative you know slide for rap but i i really don't look at it that way i think it was just rap music kind of reflected what was going on you know in society you know plain and simple and then things were changing you know i mean dramatically for you know people in in, in ghettos and urban areas and it's just how it was you know and but anyway, um, Big Daddy Kane definitely uh, one of those those rappers that you know had a huge influence, you know, in in the early days of, of, of rap music. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. So we're gonna start with this crap. Uh, well, crap is that what I said? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna start with this track, dude. Wow. Um, <laughs> I do not think this is crap at all. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I, that, it's, it's hey, man, it, it's okay. Yeah, uh, we yeah. <laughs> um, uh, ain't no half step, and so that's the first track that we're gonna play. Oh man, um, and you know, Moon describes this, and it's such an apt description. He just describes it as old school hip hop one hundred and one. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of what this is like. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Let, let's just check it out. You know, uh, let's just roll this track so we can hear it. Uh, this is Big Daddy Kane with Ain't No Half Steppin'. Mm, mm, mm. Oh, yeah. I'm with this. I'm just going to sit here and lay back to this nice mellow beat, you know, and drop some smooth lyrics. Because it's 88. Time to set it straight, you know what I'm saying? And ain't no half steppin'. Word. I'm ready. Stepping to me, they wanna get some, but I'm the cane, so yo, you know the outcome. Another victory, they can't get with me. So pick a PC day, cause you're history. I'm the authentic poet to get lyrical. For you to beat me, it's gonna take a miracle. And stepping to me, yo, that's a wrong move. So what you on, Hobbs? Dope a dog, dope a competition. I just devour. Like a pit bull against a chihuahua Cause when it comes to being dope, hot damn, I got it good Now let me tell you who I am The B-I-G-D-A-D-D-Y-K-A-N-E Dramatic, Asiatic, not like many I'm different, so 
don't compare me to another Cause they can't hang Word to the mother At least not with the principal in this pedigree So when I roll on your rappers You better be ready To die because you're petty You're just a butter knife I'm a machete This ain't my Genshu Wait until when you Try the front So I can chop into your body Just because you try to be basing Friday the 13th I'ma play Jason No type of joke that game Puzzle or riddle The name is Big Daddy Yes big not little So define it Here's your walking papers Sign it And take a walk As the canes start to talk Cause The climax, climax, relax and chill Have a break from a take of me, acting ill Brain cells are lit, ideas start to hit Next the formation of words that fit At the table I sit, making it legit And when my pen hits the paper, paw shit And we just heard Ain't No Half Steppin' by Big Daddy Kane And we're gonna move on to his track, Raw Um, And uh, this reminds me of the days back in, in rap When you had the entire backing track you know the whole instrumental the whole beat um whatever voice samples you know all done by one dj you know in the back mm-hmm. spinning yeah. records you know um yeah what do you think of raw uh just a, a great example of, of how big daddy Kane could change tempo on on his rhyme style where you know he could he could be kind of smooth and laid back or he could be very upbeat and uh you know kind of switch in between those styles, you know, almost seamlessly where it was like no big deal. And that that's not always something that was easy for a lot of rappers. Most rappers are one or the other, you know, where they, they rap really fast and intricate or they rap really, really kind of slow and, 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 and smooth, you know, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that he, he had a, a hand on, on both of those where he could, he could do it on both sides very well. And um, he was just one of those guys that just always seemed like he he had this this kind of like, you know, Don persona, like, you know, he was, you know, just cooler than than anything you'd ever seen. You know, whenever you see Big Daddy, I mean, he had his hair cut and, and like, you know, not just a high top type fade, but he was like one of the first rappers I ever saw kind of with the the cool like levels and designs in his hair where he would have all kinds of stuff, you know, going on with his hair. And he, he would uh, do this thing with his eyebrows where he would cut like these these kind of little arches in his eyebrows, which you, you'd look at him and go, what what is that about? You know, <laughs> he just looked totally different. I mean, he he was one of the first rappers I saw that would wear four finger rings, like the gold four finger rings and gold medallions. And, you know, right. yeah, and, dude, and the, he, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was no, just going to say the uh, the cover to this album. 
<laughs> it's crazy. It's yeah. like it's like him sitting on this throne, you know, covered with gold chains, and and he's got you know these like three chicks, you know, fanning him. And oh yeah, stuff. yeah, De- definitely. Big Daddy was was popular with the ladies. That is that is unquestionable. Uh, you know, he he definitely had a a way with the ladies. Apparently, that's you know part of part of his name, Big Daddy. That's apparently part of that's where that comes from. Yeah, and uh, you know, he he's just one of those guys that. You know, a lot of people model themselves after in, in, in rap music. And, and like I said, just always a big influence, especially back in those days where, you know, like I said, Mar- Marley Marl, who's just like this legendary hip hop producer, you know, for tracks way before people knew who Sean Combs was. You know, he Marley Marl was one of the guys that just he he was just awesome. He's made so many great tracks for rappers, uh, MC Shan and, and, and Biz Marquis and um, uh Cool G Rap and, and DJ Polo, just all these guys that, that came out of that area, out of Queensbridge. I mean, he was he was so, it was just such a fertile time where all these guys, they all were in the same area. And it, to, to see it, you know, back in the day, and nobody really knew, you know, exactly how big rap was going to be. I think people knew that it would be big, but, but not the way it is now. I mean, you know, just guys making, you know, big, big money selling records and going on tour and, you know, just, you know, it, it was just a, a, a great time, a great period when this record came out. Yeah, man. So let's, let, you want to just check this out, the track? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is, uh, I think, we're, this is Raw from uh, Big Daddy Kane. Chillin', killin' like a villain The meaning of raw is ready and willing To do whatever is clever Take a loss, never And the rhymes I bust Comin' off as a must And I come off hard With rhymes that are odd I rip the microphone and leave it scarred Never smoking or hitting or taking a sniff Only question MCs that be trying to rip I get strong and titanic You work like a mechanic Make them see panic They all get frantic and skeptic Like a girl on a contraceptive As I rock, but hey, what you expected? I'll get bored for you just like a boar Be a rather like a samurai And I'll be damn if I ever let a Fisher Price MC hang Then rhyme the toy, nothing but yin yang Do it for battle on the microphone Bring your own casket into a stone And I'ma preach your funeral Tell me who in the world could ever come with more I get bored Daddy Kane, um, and uh, the next artist we're going to talk about, I believe, is Bjork, or no, not Bjork, uh, 
big star. Right. Um, right. Big, big star. star. There we go. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> Uh, big star. Uh, I think they're from Memphis. They were from Memphis. Uh, yeah. Sort of a uh, big thing and and sort of indie rock that uh, that sort of never was, I guess. Uh, yeah. They had all, yeah, yeah. all kinds of issues with their record label and distribution and, uh, you know, kind of kind of sad. But, you know, you know, kind of got redeemed i guess later on in, in the years as their albums you know kind of were rediscovered by people and uh uh did you know about big star uh b- before this or uh I, I had never heard them i had he- heard of them and i knew about i knew that they had been an influence on a lot of uh rock and alternative bands in the 80s and 90s and i'd heard alex chilton's name um but I'd never heard them. I'd never, you know, taken the time to listen to the album. I mean, the albums that we're going to talk about here are uh, Number One Record and Radio City. Yeah. And uh, they're initially two separate albums. Uh, number One Record released in 1972, Radio City released in 1974. And then uh, apparently they were re-released as a double album in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, the the first track that we're going to talk about is called "The Ballad of El Gudo," Gudo, Gudo, I guess Gudo. Um, and <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I'm having like the the greatest pronunciation episode. Well, well that's time. that's fine. I mean, that's a that's a weird. That's kind of like a weird title. I thought it was I thought it was Guido at first, or I was like, you know, what what is it? Yeah, anyway, um, you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Uh, this band, like you said, you know, had a lot of troubles, mainly first stemming from their own label and basically the label failing to uh, capitalize on all the great reviews that the album got, you know, in Rolling Stone. And the critics loved the this mm-hmm. album. And uh, the problem was, was, was the label and the distribution. The album was just simply not in stores ava- yeah. available for people to buy it. And then when uh, their small label were bought up by Columbia, Columbia decided to not only really push the album, but kind of pull it out of the stores that it, that it had been in. Yeah. Um, and uh, people just couldn't get their hands on it. This caused a lot of frustration and tension in the band over the years. And people were, you know, band members were dropping out and leaving and coming back and, you know, false starting albums and, uh, Really, just a, a very difficult road for this yeah. band. Yeah, and and I guess the Alex, Alex Chilton, and Chris Bell, you know, who they, you know, the the primary, you know, performer songwriters in the in the band fell out, and um, you know, kind of just decided to go their own separate ways. I guess where Chilton kind of took the the big star name on, and, and Chris went on to do other stuff, and. Um, you know, never really were able to capitalize on that initial hype that that came about, I guess, until, you know, you know, much later, you know, and I, I the, the very first time I heard Alex Chilton's name, I think was right when he right when he passed, um, which I think was in the early 90s. Uh, you know, people got to kind of talking about him. I, I really didn't know he was. Uh, and uh, according to Wikipedia, he passed in 2010. Did he? Yeah. Did he? I thought I thought he passed a lot earlier than that. Uh, I might be thinking about somebody else. 
but I thought he passed away like in the very early 90s because uh, I, I don't know who I'm thinking about. I, I'm sorry about that. I, no, that's okay. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, actually photos of, of Alex Chilton from 2009 during a, a Big Star tour of Big Star. Uh, okay. Man, so, you know what? I, I think I, I think maybe what it was is that somebody uh, that I work with was talking about it. It might have been an album that he was re- that was re-released in the early 90s. Uh, a, a like a collection of his stuff, and I, I'm not sure why I'm trying to kill him, but um, <laughs> I just know that that somebody talked to me about him, just saying, you know, this guy's remarkable. I mean, he he just he's an awesome guitar player, and and just has this great sense for writing songs, and and it was just like a double disc. I think that I want to say like Rhino Records, somebody like that put out, and like I said, I, I don't know why I thought he died, but you know, anyway, my my mistake uh <laughs> well he did just just later than you thought but yeah um but yeah i mean you're right when you say that you know, to say that there are problems between the band members is an understatement i mean um I, i'm gonna read this thing uh just illustrates you know how bad the fighting between them was um you know there there was actually not just shouting matches but there was physical fighting between the members um, in the, and one example, Bell, uh, after being punched in the face by another, uh, member of the band Hummel, uh, he retaliated by smashing Hummel's new bass guitar, uh, into pieces against the wall. Wow. Hummel took revenge later by finding Bell's acoustic guitar in his car and repeatedly punched it with a screwdriver. I mean, this is like hardcore. Yeah. Nasty. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Really nasty. Um, so, I mean, it's no surprise that the band didn't didn't last really yeah. um but uh you know this first track we're going to play the ballad of el Gudo, um <clears throat> it has this i mean i love i loved this track i i really loved both of these tracks that we're going to play yeah. um and you know like i said new discovery for for both of us i think mm-hmm. and uh this is one of those tracks that has just this so much of a 70s classic rock sound just the sound of it, you know, just it has these gorgeous vocal harmonies, the way the drums sound, the, the guitars. I mean, this is one of those albums that um, uh, very much like uh, how I feel about Stevie Wonder's um, 70s albums, like Songs in the Key of Life and, and those like these albums where I feel like I haven't really heard them because I haven't heard them on vinyl. Yeah. You know, these albums almost sound to me like like you need to hear them on vinyl to really hear them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. What did you think of this song? Yeah, that, I totally agree. I mean, it, it just has like a, I, and I, and when you talk about the, you know, you, you hearing it on vinyl, it, it has a, an, an analog or, or an earthy feel to it that, that calls back to an era when records are made like that. Um, also to the, the, the chemistry between Alex and, and Chris, they, people would, go back and try to compare what they were doing to, to John Lennon and Paul McCartney, two guys that, that were just both really great songwriters separately, but together kind of made some really special things that apart they you know, they probably would not have, have done. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's definitely got a, 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 a Memphis feel where you, you have a, an R and B kind of, influence but 
but still like a, a, a definite pop or rock influence as well, where, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing that they they did. And I, I can understand why they were hyped so much. And it's just, I guess, kind of sad and, and fatal that their record labels, you know, kind of kicked their careers down the street, you know, you know, almost until yeah. it was basically too late. So, yep, yep. Um, well, let's hear this. Um, this is the Ballad of El Goodo by Big Star. Years ago, my heart was set to live. Oh, I've been trying hard against unbelievable odds. It's so hard in times like now to hold on. The guns they wait to be stuck right at my side is God. And there ain't no one going to turn me around. heard the ballad of el goodo and we're going to move on to in the street and uh <laughs> i think we had both heard this song before but didn't realize who it was yeah and that that's the fun thing about about music and, and the history of music there's there's always something there to learn where you you have something a lot of times that's right on you know the tip of your nose and, and you don't really recognize what it is until sometimes it comes right back around and, and hits you in the head and and when I heard the song, I was like, it's a song from that 70s show, which is a show that I initially when it came on, I, I loved that show. I, I still like it a lot, but uh, I never really thought to dig down and, and realize 
who that song was by. I mean, I just kind of thought the way that song sounds, it was written for that show, you know, and I'm, I'm know. sure a lot of people I know. probably probably thought that the same thing. Yeah, but I it did, wasn't, too. you know, <laughs> and, that, and that's a, it's the amazing thing. You know, you know, I really like that 70s show as well. And uh, when it first came on and whatever, I always just thought that theme song was brilliant because, again, like you said, I thought it was written for the show and it just feels so of the era and just the way it sounds and all this stuff I was like wow you know this is yeah this is great but it is a song from the era uh yeah it was redone so the version that you hear um uh in the beginning of that 70s show is a is a version you know it's a covered version yeah it's not not the same in it and yeah. and ironically about that that too as as the seasons change if you notice there's two different songs that you hear at the intro, like the very first season, there, there's there's a version that's different from I think the second or third season, whatever. They the songs gradually kind of they they change them, but they're yeah they're both both not the original. Uh, the yeah. big star did. Yeah, yeah, and this is just a song about uh, it really. Uh, uh, it's almost like they based that '70s show on this song. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like uh, it, it captures you know this suburban apathy, this. Uh, the sort of disillusionment of youth. Um, and, you know, if, if you're not familiar with that 70s show, you know, these lyrics, you know, hanging out down the street, same old thing we did last week, nothing to do but talk to you. You know, yeah. it's just this, yeah. And that that's just really what it, it captures, you know, this sort of mid-American suburban youth disillusionment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this had a big, you know, this is one of the reasons why this had a big influence on later bands. Um, yeah, the replacements. That's the first group that that comes up in my mind uh, with them. Just, just kind of jangly, you know, you know, no nonsense, down to earth type rock and roll. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, you you probably can think of other groups too. I mean that that they influence big time. Um, I mean, I think um, REM and Nirvana were among. Yeah, the people that said that yeah that they were influenced by them and yeah I'm sure many more. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so let's check this out. This is in the street by Big Star.
We just heard In the Street by Big Star, and we're going to move on to Icelandic singer Björk, her album Homogenic, released in 1997. And uh, <clears throat> Björk really, I, I can say, uh, and you can <laughs> agree or disagree with this, but really one of the most innovative artists in the pop world right now. Oh, yeah. Hands oh, down. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She's a force of nature. <laughs> I, I just think that she, there is nobody like her, you know, right now, maybe, maybe even ever. I mean, she's, she's so very unique. I mean, she's, she's so, so seemingly so tiny and petite, but she has this voice just so, so huge. I mean, that, that voice, I don't know where that comes from, but she just got this voice that does all kinds of things where it's, it's sweet and, and, and pleasant and then it can be like really aggressive where she's growling literally in some songs and i mean it, and she takes that and the, and the passion that she has for music and and just totally does some some really unusual you know i mean esoteric even things with with what she does with sound where she just she does not care it's just it's like you know what do we got let's let's just open up the treasure chest and it can be acoustic, it can be electronic, you know, it can be whatever. And, um, you know, this album, I think, Homogenic was was just one of those records where, you know, she was really ready to make a departure from from what she had done previously and and maybe what anybody had done um, with with her playing with, with string arrangements and, and an electronic sound and, um, percussion and, and just, you know, things that were really offbeat at times where it didn't sound like there was any genuine rhythm even in the song, but it's, it still worked, you know, and her voice always is, is the center of, of whatever she's doing seemingly. So, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, she, it's almost like she tries to come up with some kind of unified sonically driven conception for every album that she releases yeah. Um, uh, like for instance, you know, uh, one of the albums I think that um, more recent, uh, Medulla, that was an album that I think a lot of people just didn't get. A lot of people didn't like it first, but Medulla is, um, you know, along this concept, uh, pretty much everything, every track, every sound on that album is produced with the human voice. Mm. So there's really no instruments. There's no, you know, electronic beat making. There's nothing. Everything is done with a human voice. She brought in a, uh, this beatboxer. What's his name? Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, the, but this this guy who's this unbelievable beatboxer, along with um, uh, Mike Patton, who mm-hmm. who used to be the singer of Faith No More and Mr. Bungle and Phantomos and all these bands, to uh, you know basically use their voices as rhythm tracks and, and then she has you know choirs and other in like sort of classical singers and in sort of layering her own voice and all that stuff so she comes up with these you know sonic conceptions for these albums yeah. and uh this one homogenic uh we're gonna start with this track all is full of love and it's an interesting track you know because the backing track is sort of this continuous thing, you know, you know, most pop songs you hear, you have these solid divisions of verse and chorus and, you know, 
You know what I mean? How, how, oh, yeah. how a typical I, pop song is, is divided. Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, the backing track is this kind of kind of nebulous sort of ambient electronic track, almost that would like something that would be at home with like on an Aphex Twin album mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with these sort of interjections of what I think is a hammered dulcimer sound, mm-hmm. you know, almost like really improvisational sounding. And then on top of it, Bjork just kind of singing her heart out, you know, over this yeah. sort of sea of, of sort of sound, you know, this, it's, I don't know. What did you think of? Well, this? Bjork one time uh, in an interview, she, she did uh, talked about, especially the electronic side of, of, of music and the way she views it. And, and, and people were, were saying that so much of it was so cold and, and distant, but, but her mind was, if it if it seems like that, you know, and and I think another word she used was soulless, you know, and she's like, if if the electronic music is soulless, and it's because nobody put any soul in it, and I think that's a, a good example of what she does here is that uh, a a sound that might seem sort of like drone like even uh, is is not because of 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 what she injects into it with her vocal. I mean, it just you know, it, she creates an atmosphere in, in this song and, and, and many other, other songs that, that she does that it's, it's just so unique to her. And I, I really don't, I can't think of anybody else like her, you know, and just the way that voice mixes with so much of what she does. Um, and, and she's just one of those people that, that seems tireless in her work ethic when she goes into the studio and, and makes music. Uh, yeah. which you can kind of see in the result of a lot of her releases where she has been remixed into the ground. I mean, <laughs> yeah. a, a variety of sounds for for her and 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 other people working with her, which I, I think on this track, Howie B, uh, which is, you know, he's kind of like one of those kind of ambient, you know, beat makers that, that's made a lot of records for himself and other people. Um, I mean, at the time, it was just like a match made in heaven. You know where where he takes the best of himself and she takes her ideas and they just kind of put them together and and I think that's the thing that's that's fun about her. I, the only other person, well, I I shouldn't say the only other person. Somebody else that, that kind of comes to mind is is David Bowie, where you know he he's never oh, really yeah. the same. You know he he takes his his own essence and his voice and his style and and he can mix it with a variety of. Of, of musical types, but Bjork takes it even further and, and, and sometimes way left of center than even Bowie does, you know, and that, that's not a knock to him at all, but just, she's, she's really just into breaking new ground like nobody else. Oh, definitely. Oh, well, let's check out this first track. This is Bjork with all is full of love. Given love, you'll be taking care of. You'll be given love. You have to trust it. Maybe not from. Sources, you 
Just heard all is full of love, and we're going to move on to yoga or yoga. I think it's yoga, uh, J O G A. And uh, you know uh, about her. You use the word to describe her. You use you use the word unique earlier, and uh, <clears throat> you know I think that's the perfect word. I mean, really, even when talking about her singing style, it's it is completely unique. Mm-hmm. There's nobody else that has sung like her you know before or and if anybody really did it since they would just you know people would just say ah she just sounds like bjork bjork yeah exactly um yeah totally unique uh and and really that's you know that's always uh amazing thing to find in an artist when an artist can come up with something completely unique that no one has ever done and uh it really just make it something so special you know and 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 something that's you know has such staying power and and has so sort of influential so um yeah this song yoga um it's a really beautiful song i mean it's got these kind of subdued sort of electronic uh kind of club beats in the background um but they're they're sort of distorted and and sort of faded and out and and they're kind of um disjointed and you know what i mean yeah, yeah. um and and sort of over that you have this string orchestra so there's this this sort of flowing meandering string orchestra playing these kind of really beautiful lines over this beat and then uh, of course you know she's singing over that uh but just a a, a beautiful piece of music really uh, mm-hmm. what did you think of this well i I was I was reading about the 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 title of the song because I was trying to figure that out too. Like, is it yoga or, or yoga? Apparently, the, the the song is a a dedication to like her her personal assistant at the time, uh, a lady named uh, uh, Johanna, and I I don't even want to pronounce her last name because it's 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 Icelandic. Which if you've ever seen <laughs> Bjork's yeah. her her last name, it's 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 like a really long, you know, uh, Johanna Jos. And I, I'm again, it's, it's a long last name. But anyway, um, you know, she, um, dedicated sort of like the song to her and, and their homeland of, of Iceland. And uh, she also goes on to kind of talk about how, uh, the, the inspiration for, for this track and, and a lot of the album was, uh, sort of like a, a love album. She says to Icelandic nature, which if, I mean, if you ever seen the terrain of, of Iceland, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, obviously, you know, lots of, you know, mountains and frozen tundra and, you know, you know, the weird contrast with the forest and some hot springs type areas where people, you know, tend to, I, I've seen like people go and sit in these things to get the, the, you know, I guess the vitamin mineral content, you know, into their bodies or whatever. And, and she says she just thought that the the music would reflect how how the nature of Iceland was, you know, kind of 
you know, disjointed, but at the same time in harmony. And, and that's just so her. I mean, at first glance, so much of this seems so out of rhythm, but, but she manages to kind of work it to where there, there's so much beauty and so much, you know, harmony in the way she lays it out. It, it, it doesn't seem like that once it all, you know, flows on in the track. And, um, you know, she, like I said, she's just one of those people that there's, there's nobody like her, nobody. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, yeah. it just, just weird kind of how she kind of started with, with the sugar cubes. And I, I saw them here in, in, in Houston when they came and, and I never would have thought to myself that she would have gone from, from way that the way the sugar cubes were to what she is now. I mean, there's no way I could have imagined Bjork's sort of evolution <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. Even with that voice, but uh, like you said, very, very beautiful song. Yeah, man. So let's check it out. This uh, second excerpt from Bjork's homogenic yoga. All these accidents that have. Follow the dot Coincidence Makes sense Only with you You don't have to speak I feel Emotional Landscapes They pass on me The little gets out And you push me up to this data York. And I wanted to just mention a side thing. If you want to get a good picture of the landscape of Iceland and its people and culture and all this stuff, there's two shows. I know they're both on Netflix streaming 
Uh, one is uh, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations episode where he goes to Iceland. Mm. That's a good one. And then another one is from a show that I absolutely love called Dahani Tackles the Globe. Mm. Um, have you ever seen this show? No, no, but you say they're both on Netflix, right? They're both on Netflix, and, and then there's an Iceland episode. Dahani Tackles the Globe is a um, NFL linebacker, Dahani Jones. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I do know him. All right. Yeah, uh. he, he he basically, what he does on this show is he, he'll travel to some country around the world and he'll engage in their national, whatever their national sport is. So he'll spend like a week there training and then uh, participate in the sport um, at the end of it. It's, it's a, it's an awesome show, man. I love it to death. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like it would be really good. Yeah. And so he, he travels to Iceland to participate in the strong man, mm. you know, where they dudes will, uh, log you know, throwing. And, oh yeah. And, and, and like carry these gigantic spheres made of concrete. And I, uh, yeah, I'm and, familiar uh, with that. He, he trains with a dude named an, an old, timer dude named uh, magnus for magnuson so it's pretty, <laughs> <laughs> it's That's interesting funny. but uh but anyway um we're gonna move on to our our last album for the show black flag their album damaged from 1981 and uh this is uh you know an album i had heard before you know in the past um not uh, a bunch you know i think when i heard it uh, back in the late 80s, you know, I was kind of into s- other stuff. I wasn't really uh, into punk that much. And um, so I, I don't think it really made an impact on me at the time. But, you know, now that I've gone back and listened to it, uh, uh, there's a lot of tracks on here that I really love. And, and I've always been a big fan of Henry Rollins. Yeah. Um, yeah I've always been a big fan of, you know, his, his uh, sort of spoken word thing that he does, which is kind of like... Um, what it usually ends up being is like a story. Like he'll tell mm-hmm. a story of, uh, you know, something that happened to him and, and usually where he was acting stupid or something. And yeah. they usually end with some kind of moral. Oh, hello. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I've just always been, you know, really a big fan of that. I've seen him do it live. And um, but yeah, black flag. Um, what do you think of this? Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I mean, with with Rollins, uh, I, I was more into him before I was into Black Flag. I mean, it was kind of like a retro thing where uh, when when he uh, kind of had released, it was like a live album he put out. And I think I, I saw like a video for Tearing Me Apart on 120 Minutes. I really didn't know who he was at the time. You know, I mean, I'd heard Black Flag. But I, I had no idea that he was even the singer, you know, just not knowing the history. And I just remember how intense uh, he seemed. And I was like, man, that guy, he's he's off the chain, you know. And, uh, you know, as as time went by and, you know, they went on tour with Lollapalooza and uh, saw them play basically, you know, in front of a an empty, you know, Starplex crowd in Dallas. But, but seeing Rollins you know, just just lay his guts on the stage like he was playing, you know, in front of a million people. I I never seen anything like that. I mean, you know, he he totally was just um <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's okay. He was totally just, you know, un unmoved by, you know, the the lack of 
you know, crowd participation, so to speak. And I, I always had respect for him after that. And, and like you said about his spoken word, I, I've seen him play with the Rollins band and his spoken word, you know, a number of times. And, you know, like you said, always really interesting stories. Uh, the, the, the box that he put out in the early 90s that get in the van box set which is just like a large mix of his spoken yes. word stuff yes. that is just an awesome collection it is of, yeah. of of interesting you know anecdotes and travels uh his talk about uh phil linet from from thin lizzy and his respect for him his disdain for a variety of people i mean it, which which is humorous i mean you don't always have to agree with wrongs but but his his perception is the thing i love i mean um you know, just just one of those guys is kind of like an icon to me. And then this album showing them kind of at, you know, you know, their raw sort of, I guess, peak, if you will, where it's it's him and and, and Greg Ginn, who they, they just seem like they were made for each other. I mean, Rollins, the way he he just was kind of like, you know, this unconventional front man that just would would challenge people in the audience to you know, think and, and, and not be just sheep and, you know, get in their face and, and, and sometimes would get into fights with people at shows and, uh, Greg Ginn just kind of, you know, you know, jangly and, and jarred guitar sounding like somebody, you know, breaking, you know, glass windows, you know, yeah. in a house, just running around just kind of crazy. And, you know, just was a, a really good, good chemistry, uh, especially back then where there was so much music that was so, you know, you know, I guess modeled for the radio and, and, and pop oriented, you know, that their record label or distributor or whatever at the time apparently didn't want to even put the record out. Uh, it's funny, it, you know, they, they said it was anti-parent. Yeah. Whatever that means. <laughs> <That's> hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so uh, definitely uh, kind of, you know, we're rattling some cages and, and, and for good reason, you know, they, you know, they just saw so many things going on in, in the culture and, and in music, you know, people, you know, alcoholic and drug addicted and, you know, just selfish and, you know, consumer, you know, modeled and, and you know, just apathetic. And, and they just totally hated that, you know, just yes, just kind of wake up and, and get up off the couch. And I, ironically, you know, one of the songs we're going to play is, 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 is so, you know, poignant for that um but um you know this one of those one of those moments in, in music where they they i'm sure influenced so many people with, with the attitude they had you know and um you know definitely just a just an awesome awesome moment you know for for punk music and, and music in general i think yeah oh definitely and yeah, you mentioned get in the van. I mean, I would really recommend that to anybody who has even an inkling of interest in this because it's filled with so many stories about, you know, Henry Rollins and his experiences, you know, during the years that he was in Black Flag. And it's really interesting and, and at times really funny and um yeah, just a great Some, yep. thing. Yeah. Great. Yeah, really, really good, good, good collection from Henry. Just you know, he's just one of those guys. He could just talk about 
a variety of things and 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 I would sit and I would listen. You know, like I said, I don't always agree with everything he says, but he's just one of those people. Um, I, I, I this might sound weird to some people. I, I liken him to like Charles Barkley. You know, Barkley's like one of those guys too. That he 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 says a lot of stuff that that rattles people's cages, but I could listen to Charles talk. You know, for for hours. You know, and and Charles yeah. has like Henry has a lot of flaws. You know, he's he's not a perfect person, but he just he just has this this clear defined kind of mindset of, 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 of how he wants to live life, you know, seemingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, that's a good, that's a great comparison. <laughs> Charles Bartley. Um, the first uh, track that we're going to listen to is TV party. And uh, man, this is a hilarious track. And it's really, again, one of these, like, like the, uh, you know, in the street track that we played of big star, you know, uh, kind of about, suburban apathy that sort of thing about you know we're gonna have a tv party and we don't have anything better to do than sit around and watch tv and drink beer and you know there's nothing else in our heads yeah you know we don't think for ourselves and we're just sort of like slaves to the television yeah. um and uh it, it's just yeah in, in typical rollins style it's not just a commentary on this it's like uh like a raging diatribe on it oh yeah you know yeah yeah it's a total it's a total parody of, of of how so many people you know just you know kind of waste so much time in life you know and, and i'm guilty of this too sitting in front of a television you know with with nothing better to do seemingly you know just you know, have the sun shining you know clear bright day where you could be out in the park nah i i'm watching you know TV. I'm I'm watching old, you know, good times reruns or, or whatever. You know, I mean, just I, I seemingly have nothing better to do than sit here and, and kind of waste away. And uh, you know, it, it it's fun in in the fact that you, you especially if you've seen the video, they they totally you know are, are just just rowdy and and, and beer is spilling all over the place and you know laid back and that and then, and that seemingly is totally not like them. Which makes it even funnier, you know that yeah. that this is this is this is who we view you as as being, you know, and 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 some people probably took the video to heart, like yeah, man, let's let's go get some beer and 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 sit down and and watch, you know, <laughs> Buck Rogers, and he's like, no, idiot, that's that's exactly what we're not saying, you yeah, know. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> well, yeah, let's check it out. This is uh, TV Party by Black Flag. Oh! 
keys stick glued to the TV set all night And every day Why go into the outside world at all? It's such a fright We got nothing better to do Then watch TV and have a couple of brews TV news shows, what it's like out there It's a scare You can go out if you want Our TV party. We're going to move on to our last excerpt of the episode, Six Pack. And so this is, again, like TV party. This is uh, this, you know, rant uh, by Henry Rollins about really just about um, alcoholism, really. And just Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, uh, my, my life is so empty that you know i'll just fill myself with beer and everything's okay and you know that's yeah. kind of what it's about yeah, yeah. And, and i mean another thing about ron too he, he, i mean if you ever seen the guy i mean you could tell he he really takes care of himself i mean yeah yeah yep. i mean I, i've i've never seen a, i mean a guy i mean so dedicated you know and you know you know he's dedicated on, on days where he yep. probably wakes up and he just totally feels like uh uh-uh, uh I I can't do this but he does it anyway you know and yeah. and, and works out and and stays in shape and you know no caffeine no sugar no definitely no alcohol or drugs and I mean it, and I I imagine I mean you know maybe I mean I, I don't think Ron's probably vegan you know I, I definitely would say that he probably eats meat but it just totally is not eating like jack in a box and and, and all that kind of stuff and you know so anti you know American apathy if you will yeah and, and apathy period where it's just yeah. you know I you know I give up he he seems like he's he's so like you know even if I have to crawl to get to where I'm going I'm I'm getting there you know yeah you know just just totally dead anyway um, well yeah you, you really get the feeling that he lives every minute of his life like he is on stage. Yeah. You know, just like that hardcore, just about everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't show up, I'm showing up anyway. I mean, regardless, I, I'm going to do what I have to do, you know, and, and it may seem somewhat self-centered, but I'm, I'm going to be on, on point, you know, you know, regardless of if, if I'm the only person on point. So, uh, and it's and it just the, the kind of, of mentality that, you know, a, a six pack will solve all my woes, you know, and and get me through the night. I think that's his his kind of, you know, like you said, a diatribe or scorn on that that mindset. You know, I'm gonna go home and 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 yell at my kids and and rough up my wife and you know just you know so often how, how alcoholism you know takes you down that road, you know, where you you're you're kind of you know not not yourself, you know, or not in a, in a state of mind where you can, you can think straight and make good decisions, you know? Yeah. Um, almost like, uh, what you call it? Don Jose. Uh, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice way to come full circle on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the thing about Rollins is that he, he, he's just one of those, those guys that even if you don't think that you can, you know, 
kind of be just like that, where you're that dedicated. It, it, it will inspire you to kind of, you know, not just settle for whatever and, and allow yourself to, you know, kind of, you know, go with the flow or be a sheep or, or, or just lay flat on your face when, when life is, you know, when life is tough. And I, I know he's, he's been through, I mean, just listening to his stories, he, he, he's been through a lot. You know, the guy has, you know, had different issues with his, his mother and father and, you know, oh, yeah. you know, just different, you know, issues like when, uh, you know, he, he had to watch his, basically his brother get killed in front of him. And, um, you know, just the, the guy continues to, to be Rollins, you know, to be the, just one of the toughest dudes you'll, you'll, you'll ever want to see, you know. Definitely. Well, I don't know. Are you ready to check this out? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and, and listen to this. this is the last track that we're going to play this week. Uh, six pack from black flag. six pack from black flag and uh that's the show for this week and um if you uh you know like the show definitely please go to itunes uh uh give us a review or if you don't like the show uh you know you can do that too i i'm i'm sure that's coming that has not come yet as far as i can tell uh, <laughs> but uh it has you know, not come yet yeah uh we we and we we encourage and, and enjoy all input and feedback from from anyone who who may be listening uh to the show and um definitely uh next week uh i think we are listening to uh black sabbath oh yeah black sabbath right and their album uh paranoid yeah so yeah I'll, cool. i'm looking forward to that definitely um then we have an album of ruben blades and willie colon salsa i guess yeah yeah, Ruben, Ruben, I think he, and whenever he says his name, because I, whenever I see that, I say Blaze, I think he says Blades. Well, that uh, makes sense. <laughs> but but he's one of those guys that he's he's done a lot. He's, I mean, music, 
He's been in movies. He was an, an actor quite frequently. I think he still is. And I, I want to say he's into politics now um, huh. where he uh, he ran for political office. And I it's on the spot right now. where I can't remember. I want to say Cuba, but uh, I can't remember. But he's just one of those guys that he's he's almost like a renaissance man. He's he's done a lot um, in his lifetime. Uh, but uh, anyway, um and also, uh, think of a blind Blake, uh, a ragtime guitar player. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, be new, new to me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, then after that, we have Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Yep. And uh, then finally, Bobby Blue Bland, a blues two, guitarist. Two Steps from the Blues, a good, our, very classic. Blues, uh, wait, is he a guitarist or just... Bobby singing? Bubland is is mainly a vocalist. Okay, uh, sorry. And uh, very very uh, classic blues album. Uh, Bobby Bubland is like one of the to me one of the last true you know kind of blues icons that are still around. I mean, outside of maybe like BB King, you know, and and a few other people. There's there's very very yeah. few of the, the true blues men. I mean, that as far as vocalists or or guitar players or whatever. I mean, they they're there are not too many of them around, you know, buddy guy. And, you know, anyway, um, yeah, cool. That's next week. Cool, cool, man. Looking forward to that. And I have to thank our special guest again, Julie Nasrallah for coming on the show. And, uh, really <clears throat> you can, uh, you know, go to her website and check her stuff out. Um, at Julie It's Julie with an I E and then Nasrallah is spelled N E S R A L L A H. So just one word, julianisrella.com. Um, and check her out on the CBC. And, and yeah. yeah, we thank her for coming on. So Yeah, that was awesome. So yeah, we want to start doing this more often. So hopefully in the future we'll have uh, some more special guests for you guys to give some special insight on some of the albums that we talk about. And uh, so we might have some surprises, you know, coming up in future episodes. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be really cool. cool. I can't wait. Um, Me too. So that is it for this week. Um, we will see everybody next week later, Mitch. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Woo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs>